This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by our friends at Beedratty. So I want to tell you about the Willy Crew Neck Tee. It's a long sleeve tee, and I'm actually wearing one right now. You'll just have to trust me on that. But as I've been putting this DocuPod series together, I've been wearing my Willy Crew Neck Tee a lot because it is so comfortable, made of the softest Peruvian Pima cotton. And you know what? I look better than I deserve to. So get yourself to bedratty.com, put a long sleeve t-shirt in your cart, and enter code TFE for 15% off. Bedratty.com, code TFE, 15% off. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. It's not to be feared, though. It's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. So what, you got cash or, huh? What? Man, I got something better than cash. This is from the movie Lords of Dogtown. It's about the invention of modern skateboarding. These are urethane skateboard wheels. They're ur what? <laughs> They're in a skate shop. One character has dumped a new set of skateboard wheels on the counter. Urethane wheels. Urethane, man. It comes from oil. From oil? Yep. With these, you can do the same hard turns that you do on your surfboard. Yeah? Yep. You can even climb walls, man, because they grip. They grip? They grip. They grip. Shit. The skaters attach the new wheels to a board, climb the fence of a local schoolyard, and take turns surfing the asphalt. Tight, graceful swerves, jumps, and long carves off an embankment. Oh, my God. Nice. Ripping, dude. Insane. Insane. That was 1972, and most skateboarders agree that it was the single biggest turning point in the history of the sport. Without the urethane wheel, the forms of skateboarding we know today, on vert ramps and skate parks, would simply not exist. Unlike the hard clay wheels that preceded them, urethane wheels were not prone to sliding because urethane had some give to it. It formed itself to the inconsistencies in the ground and made for a smooth ride. At the same time, in spite of being relatively soft for a plastic, urethane was extremely durable. It was one of the 20th century's miracle plastics. Flexible and inflexible, soft and strong. A contradiction that could be created only in a lab. And 20 years after urethane changed skateboarding forever, it did the same to golf. This is Fried Egg Stories. I'm Garrett Morrison. This episode is the last of three to take a closer look at the golf ball, its design, its history, and its impact on the game. Each installment has focused on a different revolution in golf ball technology. We've gone from the gutta percha ball in the mid-1800s to the Haskell ball in the early 1900s. And now we've arrived in golf's modern era when a new kind of ball was on the rise, a ball made of advanced, meticulously engineered plastics kinds of plastics that first appeared on spaceships, but eventually came to surround us in our everyday lives. Like the whole world is made out of plastic now. So there is, there is no application that plastic cannot be used for, except maybe to eat. That's Harry Brown. You heard from him in the first episode of this series. 
And in this one, he's going to help me tell the story of how plastics entered golf in the 1960s, took it over in the 90s, and ultimately re-engineered the game. Better things for better living through chemistry for the finer world we want. DuPont was founded in 1802 and became well known for manufacturing gunpowder and dynamite. But at the turn of the 20th century, the company moved into an exciting new area, the science of plastics. In the 20s and 30s, DuPont invented neoprene, nylon, and Teflon. During World War II, it produced raw materials for parachutes. But it was after the war that the company truly came into its own, racking up patents for Mylar, Orlon, Lycra, Tyvek. This was DuPont's better things for better living through chemistry era. And a lot of those better things were plastics. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Here, the 1967 film The Graduate, pokes fun at what was a real feeling in post-war America, that the hard times were over, the economy was on the rise, and the future was synthetic. Exactly how do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Enough said. That's a deal. What did people hope that plastics would be and would, would bring to the world? I, th I think it's opportunity and democracy. So it's uh, an accessibility. If I'm starting a family and I need to buy a kitchen table and there's a kitchen table made out of oak, right? And that kitchen table costs $700. And then there's a kitchen table made out of plastic and that table costs $50, okay? I can live the dream and buy a nice big kitchen table uh, for my family to have dinner at made out of plastic. Works in exactly the same way it just maybe doesn't feel as nice and look as nice and smell as nice, but we can still we can still have dinner on it. And I think you can apply that to any other plastic object. Aside from cheapness and mass producibility, the main appeal of plastic, Harry Brown told me, was that it could be and do just about anything. It was free from the shackles of nature. You can engineer it on a molecular level, and then you can kind of shape it into basically anything that you want. So it's almost like magic. You can't make wood do anything that you want. You can't make metal do anything that you want. But you can make plastic do almost anything that you want. Assume any shape, engineer it to have greater or lesser durability. Plastics were about the hope that science could make our lives better. And it wasn't long before that ethos made its way into golf. But before we talk about how fancy plastics took over the game, we should get into some background. Because this isn't just a story about technology, it's also about two very different companies. On the one hand, you had Titleist. Out of its factories near New Bedford, Massachusetts, Titleist produced rubber wound core balls with balata covers, basically a refined version of the Haskell ball that had dominated the trade since the beginning of the century. Titleist put out an old-fashioned product, but one known for its quality and consistency, for its appeal to good golfers. On the other hand, you had Spalding, a sporting goods giant. The company had been making golf balls in Chicopee, Massachusetts since the late 1800s, and its style was flashier than Titleist's. Through the years, Spalding had been unafraid to try new things. So by the 1960s, Titleist and Spalding, a two-hour drive between them, 
were battling for the biggest share of the golf ball market. And it was in that decade, the 1960s, that the modern golf ball made its debut. The modern ball was essentially a mashup of two brand new synthetic materials. The first was developed by James Barch in 1963, a complex elastomer. Barch discovered that this material could be molded into a solid one-piece golf ball. But Barch's invention never really broke through. It was cheap to produce, but it just didn't perform very well. Around the same time, though, DuPont was developing a plastic called Serlin, which was tough but pliable. Soon, a few manufacturers recognized that putting a Serlin cover on a Barch-style elastomer core might be a pretty good idea. One of those manufacturers was Spalding. Spalding released its first solid-core two-piece ball, the Executive, in 1967. But four years later, the company really put it all together with the Top Flight, which had a lively elastomer core and a durable Serlin cover. The key to this ball was spin, or rather, the lack of it. The ball that came before, the wound ball, had a lot of spin. That would cause it to climb into the air and land soft. So pros often played very low-lofted drivers, sometimes down around 6 degrees, because they were trying to keep their drives from ballooning on them and losing distance. The top flight didn't have that problem. Less spin meant a flatter, straighter trajectory, especially in the wind. So you could loft up your driver, launch the ball high, and watch it bore through the air. But there was a catch. The top flight was low spinning off of wedges, too, which meant it didn't stop as fast on greens. And skilled players, who could be very precise with their short approaches, didn't like that loss of control. So ultimately, you had two balls that excelled at two different things. The top flight off the tee, and the old wound core balata covered ball around the greens. I remember playing in amateur events in New England in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. That's Joe Henley, who has been an executive for both Titleist and Spalding. And the good players would have a top flight in there or two in their bag. And if you had a 220-yard par three into the wind, the good players would put the titleist away for a hole and, and play the top flight on that hole. And on the next hole, they'd put the titleist back in play for the rest of the round. Soon, the governing bodies ruled that you couldn't switch the make and model of your ball mid-round. So good golfers, including almost every PGA Tour player, stuck with the wound ball. Whereas many amateurs, maybe not as concerned with spin on their wedges, jumped on the elastomer and Serlin train. Roughly speaking, Titleist for the pros, top flight for the Joes. You know, there was rivalry. There was no question there was rivalry. In the 1980s, Joe Henley was a director of sales at Titleist. When I was at Titleist, I'd hear the phrase, those folks in Chicopee, referring to uh, Spalding's uh, headquarters in Chicopee, Massachusetts. You know, Spalding was the the giant in the room, you know, the other giant in the room. Yet the two companies had very different sales strategies, each suited to their style of product. With its premium balls, Titleist wanted to do well at premium outlets, mostly pro shops at golf clubs. Titleist had on-course market share of 45%, let's say, and then the off-course golf specialty stores, their their market share was, I, I believe, around 30%, roughly. And the sporting goods stores and mass merchants, their market share was much less. Spalding, with its top flight brand, took the opposite approach. Spalding, on the other hand, you know, had an on-course market share that really was maybe high teens or possibly 20% at times. Golf specialty store market share, probably 30 to 35. And, and then they 
dominated the Kmarts at the time or Walmarts and the sporting goods stores. So whereas Titleist was high-end and high-margin, Top Flight was all about quantity and mass appeal. The same was true of their marketing approaches. Titleist wanted, above all, to be the number one ball on tour. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the, the phrase that Titleist used was the pyramid of influence. Okay, and the pyramid of influence is a triangle that the peak of the period would be the PGA Tour, European Tour, LPGA Tour, Senior Tour, etc. That would filter down, you know, to the PGA Club professional. They would be kind of in the next tier. Then it would be leading amateurs. Titleist was aiming, in other words, for breadth of influence among top players. Spalding, on the other hand, didn't go for number most used, number one. They were more advertising of stars, you know, of, of names and of people that were could be great spokespeople. Spokespeople like Greg Norman, who had a Spalding logo on his bag, and Lee Trevino, often seen pitching top flight on TV. Some people think the way you tell a serious golfer is whether he pulls a certain ball out on the first tee. Me, I'm only interested in their scorecard. And players who want to score better are using the top flight tour. Trevino doesn't mention the name Titleist, but he might as well. The ad is addressing the widespread feeling that good golfers use Titleist balls. Hey, the way you really tell a good golfer is if he has to pull his wallet out on the 18th green. The new Top Flight Tour balls. But while Titleist and Top Flight were in competition, they also represented a kind of balance between premium and discount, between skilled players and average ones. And this balance gave the game a sense of stability. Think about it. From the late 60s to the late 90s, the strongest golfers knowingly and willingly gave up distance off the tee in order to gain control around the greens. It was a natural sort of bifurcation. While most amateurs took advantage of the latest and longest, most pros chose not to. This was because the modern golf ball was not yet all things to all people. Engineers hadn't figured out how to make a ball low spinning in some situations and high spinning in others, so the hope of better things for better living through chemistry wasn't fully realized in golf. But the 1990s were determined to change that. You know, I was always a Titleist guy. Mark O'Meara had played a Titleist ball for much of his career. But in 1996, his contract was up. And I was friends with Payne Stewart. And he came over one day and he said, hey, M.O., would you ever consider maybe thinking about playing this ball? And I said, what ball? It was the top flight Z Bellata, which, in spite of its name, had no Bellata in it. Its cover was made of a soft serlin called Zinthane, and the core was solid elastomer. It was a two-piece ball. And I said, you know, I never thought about that pain. He goes, no, look, I'm playing it. It's a good ball. And I knew at one point, I believe Greg Norman might have been playing it. If Mark was skeptical, you couldn't blame him. Although players like Lee Trevino and Jumbo Ozaki had used the two-piece ball to great effect, Payne Stewart hadn't been as successful. Three years earlier, Stewart had signed a huge deal with Spalding, and he had really struggled with his top-flight equipment. Some thought he had chosen money over results. PGA Tour player Scott Hoke once told a reporter, after playing a good ball, now he's got to play a range ball. So Mark had some questions for Payne about the z Bellata. You know, how is it like out of the rough? Are you going to hit more flyers or this or that because of the solid construction? And he goes, no, not at all. Absolutely not. 
It's not like a pinnacle or a hot dot or any of these balls that, you know, would go really far. And he was right. So I, I started trying it. I liked it. Meanwhile, Joe Henley was the new director of professional relations at Spalding. And in early 96, he had his eye on Marco Mira. He won the tournament champions when it was held at La Costa, opened the year up with a win. I remember running into the PGA show that year, and he was still not under contract to title us. So Joe got to work. By March, Mark was playing the top flight Z-Balada. And by April, he was signing a new contract with Spalding. I remember we signed his endorsement agreement at a house he was renting in Augusta. There were three people at the table. It was Mark and me and Mark's father, Bob, who was witness on the contract. It was quite a step for him. But, you know, the tour players, people that have changed their equipment out there or money or quickly without really debugging stuff, the failures are, some of them are pretty significant, right, without naming names. So so Mark was, uh, he debugged it. He was, uh, you know, 100% comfortable with the product by the time he signed on. And when Mark signed, Joe had some inside news for him. And he goes, you know, Mark, we have this other ball that's coming down the pipeline. We don't have a name for it yet, but it's going to be a prototype ball. We're getting approval right now from the USGA. And towards the end of the year, they they called me and they said they had the ball ready. It was approved. It was the ball that would eventually be named the Top Flight Strata. Now, for a long time, manufacturers had claimed that their new ball went farther off the tee and spun more around the greens. But the Strata was one of the first to actually do both of those things. Reason being that it was a three-piece ball with a core, a cover, and a mantle layer between them. And it was, it, it was the basis of it was to have a multi, multi-layer construction. Dean Snell was a plastics engineer for Titleist. And right away, he saw that the Strata was starting to solve the long-time problem of spin off of different clubs. When you looked at wound golf balls, if you looked at your wedge spin, it was very high, and your driver spin was very high. Okay, so it's high and high. And when you took two-piece golf balls, the driver spin was very low, but the wedge spin was very low. So the goal was to say, how do you go from this low driver up to this high wedge? How do you make that happen? That's where the multiple layers come in. You see, different parts of the golf ball determine spin for different kinds of shots. When you hit a golf ball with a driver, you compress the ball about one-third the diameter. So that's where everything happens. It's, it's the driver, it's the spin rate, it's the ball speed, comes in from the core. Now when you hit with a wedge, the cover is very thin, very soft, and a firm mantle. So you're not getting into the core with a wedge, you're pinching. And what happens is the ball will have a tendency to pinch the soft cover to the firm mantle, to the hard club, and it rolls on the face. So when, when you pinch it, it rolls on the face, that creates a low launch with high spin. So the layers control the spin throughout the ball. The core is really your driver. And as you work out to the outside cover, that's your wedge. And everything in the middle has a model that you can predict. So now if you said to me, hey, I want a golf ball and make the eight iron spin be higher, I would work on the layers where the eight iron has impact and change the spin up or down. So it's like different balls depending on how much a certain club compresses it, I guess. Like different, different balls within the ball become active. That's correct. Exactly right. You, you activate the layer based on the, the angle of your club. And the top flight strata was proof of that concept. It created what Dean calls a spin curve. It, it strata was, you know, to, to credit to top flight on this, strata was kind of the first that changed that spin curve. 
it, it showed that the multi-layer was able to drop the spin, but still keep the wedge spin high. So it showed that you could create a spin curve, you know, in there throughout the set. If you plot driver through sand wedge and you go low to high on spin, two pieces low, low, wound balls high, high, this showed you could actually change the curve of driver spin, eight iron spin, wedge spin. You could actually have different things based on having multiple layers. And Marco Mira was a fan. The first thing I noticed was I didn't lose any distance, but I felt like the softness, the feel around the greens, putting it, pitch shots, chip shots, you know, still in the wind, it was very good. So uh, the overall aspect of it, I thought was better. And so I felt like I was playing a more superior product. So I was, you know, in love with it right away. The next year, 1998, Mark won the Masters and the Open Championship. He was 41 years old and the first player to win a major with a multi-layer solid core golf ball. And his competitors took notice. You know, they're like, hey, is it just, you know, Mark's playing better or is it the ball that's helping him play better? Is it his clubs? So I do believe, Garrett, it it created a, a little bit of a buzz out there for sure. As all of this was happening, Titleist was putting together its response. In 1990, the company hired Dean Snell. While Snell had grown up around where Titleist was based, he was not into golf. He was a hockey player. I didn't have a set of clubs. I hated the game. One day, though, his dad got him some clubs and dragged him out to the course. We pull up in the parking lot, and as we pull up, there's another group of people getting out of the car, and he's like, hurry up, we got to beat them to the tee. So I'm like, see, already it's not fun, you know? What are we rushing for? You're here, got the day off. So we get the clubs, we go out the first tee, my first round of golf, and I hit a tee shot and it goes so far to the right, didn't even go look for it. And the second hole I hit it and it went off into the trees in the woods on the right and he hit one down the middle. And I'm in the woods and all of a sudden I'm trying to find it and I see this group of people in my father's face, two, two guys in my father's face, and he's hollering at them and one of them pushes them. So I came running out of the woods and I clotheslined the guy, knocked him <laughs> right in his ass and, and we pummeled them and everybody came over and the director came out and they, they threw us off on the drive home his dad told him what had happened and he said well you were in the woods looking for your damn ball he said the guy up there hit it and it came down and it hit my father his tee shot he didn't wait so he grabbed a three wood and he shot it back at him <laughs> and the guy didn't like it so that's why he came down and got in his face so i was sitting there i'm driving home i'm like you know i, I think maybe i do like golf this could be <laughs> this could be pretty interesting you know <laughs> Nonetheless, it was not a burgeoning love of the game that brought Dean Snell to the golf industry. It was plastics. While he was playing hockey at UMass Lowell, he got a degree in plastics engineering, and he went on to work for BF Goodrich Aerospace before moving to Titleist R&D. At the time, Titleist made its golf ball covers with a synthetic form of bolada, but it was a finicky material, complicated, and expensive to produce. And then if anybody ever play golf with a lot of golf balls when you hit a wedge the thing would be you'd have to shave it you know it'd have hair sticking up on it so the durability was a big issue also Bellata created a lot of spin which meant the balls didn't go very far so dean's task was to solve all of those problems with one sophisticated cover material their project that they hired me for was to develop a process to make a urethane golf ball because it didn't exist urethane the skateboard wheel stuff So the goal was to say, how do you work on bringing this driver spin rate down, create a durable cover 
and help the golf ball be longer. So if the spin drops with your driver, you can add loft now. They don't have to do six degrees. They can go up. And the more you can drop that spin, the higher you can go in loft, the further the ball went. And urethane had a unique potential to do all of this at once. The uniqueness of it is the cross-linking that happens during the process. So it creates bonds that are very tough, which makes the durability be very good. So it's why you'll see urethane wheels on skateboards. You know, so it gives you that durability, gives you the processing to cast it thin, you know, and it doesn't add speed, but it really it changes the whole, you can, you can do obviously a lot of different ratios. You can do all different hardnesses. So it sounds like part of what makes urethane special is that it's a, it's a really durable material. It's, it's tough, but at the same time, it allows you to manipulate its softness or hardness. Correct. And, and, and what's also unique about it is in urethanes, the softer you go, the more durable you can make it. Where in Surlins, the softer you go, the less durable it is. It took a few years, but the Titleist team eventually dialed in its urethane process. My first launch, I started in 1990 working on urethane. I brought it into manufacturing in 1994 with a ball called Tour Prestige, which went to Japan. The same ball came out the next year in the U.S. under the name Titleist Professional. A liquid core with rubber threads wound around it, all enclosed in cast urethane. It didn't change the spin curve like the Strata did, but the urethane cover was optimized. It spun less than Bellata off the driver and just enough off the wedges. The Professional became the most played ball on the PGA Tour. And in 1996, a hotshot amateur came to Massachusetts to test it. He, him and his dad came in, and I remember two straight weeks of working out at a place called Manchester Lane, which is where the Titleist test facility is. When he left there, he could tell you what his seven iron was going to spin and how high it was going to go, and the difference between the Bellata ball and this ball. He was he was very tuned in to what was going on. That was, of course, a 20-year-old Tiger Woods. A year later, he would strike his Titleist professional ball 270 times en route to winning the Masters by 12 strokes. It's one of those coincidences of history that's almost too neat. Tiger Woods wins the 97 Masters with the urethane ball. Marco Mira wins the 98 Masters with the multi-layer ball. And around that time, the storylines of Woods, O'Meara, the professional, and the strata all converged. We would always practice at home in Orlando at Isleworth, and Tiger uh, and I would always like play our practice rounds together to prepare for the Masters the next week. It was either 98 or 99. Mark was playing the strata, Tiger, the professional. I remember specifically, it was like on the 11th hole at Isleworth or the 12th hole, we were around the greens and we were pitching the ball. And he was like, you know, he always called me M.O. He goes, M.O., he goes, I don't understand how you like, you know, hit these little pitch shots where you get so much spin on the ball. I mean, it's like, how, how do you do that? And I said, you know, Tiger, over a period of time, I'll kind of show you what you got to do. But it, it's just this certain technique. I was kind of working them. I was throwing all these golf balls back to him. Next thing you know, he hit a few with my strata. And boom, he saw this thing checking in there spinning. And he kind of looked at me and he said, Emo, it's not you. It's the golf ball that's doing this. So I'm, I looked at him and I said, exactly. He goes, well, what, what, what are you even holding out on me? I said, no. I said, to be fair, I said, Tiger, I said, you're playing an archaic golf ball. That tour professional ball is an archaic golf ball. I said, you know, these companies today, you represent Nike. 
they build Bridgestone golf balls. They can build you a golf ball that's perfect for your game. And he goes, uh, what? And then about three weeks later, maybe a month later, he called me and he says, you know, Mo, you need to come down to my house. I got to show you something. I'm like, what? And I come down, I drive my cart down to his house. He lived four houses down from me. And I come into his house and I go into his office and he's got these three uh, white boxes of golf balls. And he goes, hey, check this out. We need to go out and play some holes. I just got these the other day. These were the prototypes of what would become the Nike Tour Accuracy, made by Bridgestone. A multi-layer, solid construction ball with a urethane cover. Basically, a blend of the Strata and the Professional. Tiger switched to the Tour Accuracy in May 2000. In the next three months, he won three majors. And by the end of the summer, Titleist staffers were getting restless. According to John Garrity in Sports Illustrated, the likes of Justin Leonard, Davis Love, and Phil Mickelson were, quote, frantic, convinced that their wound balls put them at a competitive disadvantage. They were right. And in October of that year, at a PGA Tour event in Las Vegas, Titleist debuted the Pro V1, a three-layer ball with the cast urethane cover that Dean Snell had helped develop. 47 players used it that week, and two of them, Billy Andrade and Phil Mickelson, went 1-2. You know, that, that's to the manufacturers, that's a home run for them. When they bring a new product out that first week and it wins, that's their big splash, you know. By that time, Snell was heading up TaylorMade's ball division. And, and, then, and then they're going to have wins the rest of the year because they have such a great staff, you know. And so they're going to continue to win and then they can make the noise. Here's another tidbit from John Garrity. At the 2000 Masters, 59 of the 95 players were using wound golf balls. At the 2001 Masters, four were. And yet, in 2001, Titleist still led the ball count on the PGA Tour. By a lot. So the Pro V1 had seen the company through the final golf ball revolution and brought it into the age of plastics. Spalding, on the other hand, went bankrupt in 2002. And top flight golf balls? Well, if you see them today, you're probably at the driving range. So, in one way, the golf ball has caught up with the promise of better things for better living through chemistry. The solid core, multi-layer, urethane-covered ball is an amazing object. It's a marvel of design and chemistry, and it seems capable of being and doing anything. Or almost anything. Alex Weber is a free diver. She just holds her breath. That's Christopher Joyce reporting for NPR about Alex Weber, a high school student at Carmel, California, Alex was diving off the coast of Pebble Beach Golf Links one day when she looked down and made a startling discovery. You couldn't see the sand. It was completely white. Golf balls. You look down and you're like, what are you doing here? Thousands of golf balls. It felt like a shot to the heart. So Alex and her friends started hauling them out, often dodging errant shots from the tees and fairways above. And over the next two years, they removed more than 50,000 golf balls from the waters around Pebble Beach. With the help of a professor, Alex published a paper on the effects of all of this. Turns out golf balls do pollute, and one of the main culprits is urethane, which degrades in water. Now, let's not blow this out of proportion. The paper states that even 50,000 golf balls will have a minimal impact on the ocean. Besides, the Pebble Beach Company has now started a cleanup program. In general, though, plastics pollution is a big problem. 
none of what we've manufactured since the inception of plastics has naturally decomposed. That's Harry Brown again. The only plastics that are no longer in the environment, which we brought into the environment, are those which we've burned or those which we've kind of like chemically dissolved somehow. The rest of plastic still exists and it, it, may, it may long outlive us. The, the, the thing, and this is the blessing and the curse of plastics, the thing that makes it so magical, its pliability, its durability, uh, is the thing that makes it an environmental hazard. So there's a great and terrible irony to the plastics era. These materials can be and do everything we want, except not be a threat to us and our environment. We might have better things, but they haven't necessarily made for better living. A few years ago, Harry was playing at Old Hickory, a local course in Indiana. You know, I drive into the weeds on the fringe and it kind of, uh, it borders this pasture and the grass is high. <clears throat> I park the cart, I walk around about 10 feet. I find 10 balls, except for my, I don't find my ball. So I'm just thinking if I'm exploring this little 10 feet radius of weeds, there must be hundreds of balls along this fence line. It's, they're everywhere. Uh, they're just kind of concealed beneath the surface. It reminds him of a photo book by Charles Lindsay called Lost Balls. There's photographs of like golf balls, like embedded in bear poop, you know, that, that bears eat and then kind of like recycle back. Uh, of course, they're totally intact. You could you could play around with that golf ball that cycled through the bear's digestive system. But then there's also balls that have been picked up by fish to build nests in streams, balls that have been kind of like picked up uh, by birds as kind of surrogate eggs you kind of eject them into the environment when you hit your hook or your slice and it goes into the creek uh, or it goes into the weeds and you forget about it and it's there for 500 years and the environment kind of interacts around it but it's it's never part of the environment which is sort of a symbol of how golf relates to nature these days i mean we play golf in nature but also against nature and that agonistic side of the game battling the elements beating the course is where the desire for better equipment, more advanced equipment, comes from. It's why we find ourselves playing with graphite, titanium, and urethane instead of wood, cowhide, and feathers. So all of those lost plastic balls, the ones that the environment refuses to absorb, their very design and composition are reminders of how much we want to overcome nature. Yet given that the balls are lost, they're also reminders of how often we still fall short. I love the T.S. Eliot poem. T.S. Eliot says, when we're gone and turned to dust, the only thing that's going to be left is basically asphalt and golf balls. <laughs> Maybe not even asphalt. Every day that we are living is such a thrill that we can't stay nonchalant. Better things for better living are coming still. That's the promise of Dubai. This was the seventh episode of Fried Egg Stories, and the third and final installment of our ball series. It was produced and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, and it was edited and engineered by Jay Virick. Our executive producer is Andy Johnson. 
We're very grateful to our guests for this episode. Dean Snell now runs his own golf ball company, Snell Golf. Harry Brown has a book called Golf Ball. Check out the link in the show notes. Joe Henley is now the CFO of Trust Engineering in Massachusetts. And Mark O'Meara, at the age of 63, is 29th in the Schwab Cup standings on the Champions Tour. Thanks for listening.